We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. And as is our tradition, when you get there and you have it, I know you've already been standing some this morning, but if you one more time, just stand for us um, as we give reverence to reading the living and powerful Word of God. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15. I love the song selection this morning. While you're turning, I'll, I'll say this. Um, uh, every song that, um, that was sung was talking about what I want to introduce to you over the next few weeks. I want to be going, I'm going to be teaching a series on getting to know God. And, and I love that, that, that song we just sung, I want to know you, Lord. Like I know a friend. I, I want to know you, Lord. And you know, that, that is the cry of, of every true Christian's heart is, God, I want to know you more. And so this morning we're going to begin at looking at the God who is to get to know Him a little bit more. Exodus chapter 3 beginning in verse 13. This is what it reads. It says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they ask me, well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. You can be seated. And as you're seated, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning, and you're the whole reason we're here, literally. <laughs> Not just here in this building, but you are the whole reason we are here. And Father, I, I just pray this morning that you would help us to, to know our Creator more. Father, we do want to know you more. We do want to love you more. Father, I, I don't want to continue in this nonchalant life of just um, mundane routines. And Father, I pray that you would help me to see you and to know you in such a way that my love for you grows so that you become the most important thing in my life. I pray that I would be able to see you as the eternal God, that, that, that nothing else matters other than you and who you are, and that that's not a burden, that's not a bad thing, that's a, a fantastic thing to know you and to experience you and to love you and to, to live in eternity with you. Father, I pray that you help us this morning to, to unwrap your word. To, Lord, I pray you open our hearts, you open our minds. Lord, open our eyes so that we can see you for just a little bit more of who you are. Father, it's only through your spirit that we're going to be able to accomplish this. I know that. Father, we will not be able to do this on our own. We won't be able to read this and it just show us who you are. It's only if you open our eyes and you open our hearts and you cause us to understand it. More importantly, you cause us to believe it. And so, Father, I pray that you help us to believe your word this morning, to trust that you are who you say you are. And, Father, thank you so much for giving us this word, Lord, that teaches us all about you. 
Father, we love you and we praise you. And I ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've had a burden for um, some time as a pastor when I look at myself, but also whenever I look at the people that I pastor and then the people that I work with that are Christians and just Christians in general that I know over the last month or so, I guess, I've just had this deep burden that, that most of us are, are literally wasting this short life that we have away on passing pleasures. That we get wrapped up and caught up in, in, in the things of this world that, that just will not last. And, and don't get me wrong when I say this, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, um, that the pleasures that we enjoy are all bad. Because they're not. But I, I'm drawn back to a, a passage that we heard from Jesus in Luke chapter 17 where Jesus talked about what the days of His coming would be like. He said, let me, let me tell you what the days will be like when I come back for judgment. And you would expect him to say at that moment, well, there, there's going to be great sin and it's just going to be evil and more evil and more evil. But that's not what he says. He says, the days that I come back are going to be like the days of Lot. Well, where did Lot live? Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what was Sodom and Gomorrah like? Well, it was full of sexual immorality and it was full of all kinds of evils that was completely contrary to God and His ways. Alright? So you would expect that Jesus would say, okay, the days that I come back are going to be like the days were in Lot. It's just going to be full of sin. Evilness. But instead, that's not what He says. He says... There are going to be people eating and drinking, planting and growing, building houses, marrying and giving in marriage until the sky splits open and the sun comes back. And you have to stop and ask the question, well, hang on, those things are not bad. What's bad about eating? Well, for the most part, what's bad about eating? Or for the most part, what's bad about drinking? Or for the most part, what's bad about marrying or giving in marriage? They're honorable, biblical things. And so why would God or Jesus point these things out to us? And He said He wants you to know, He wants you to understand this. That the problem is not always just this evilness of sin as much as it is we are so in love with the things of this world that are not necessarily evil in and of themselves, that we have no time for God. And he said, that's what the days are going to look like when I come back. It's going to look like people just living everyday ordinary life, not necessarily in some deep dark sin, but just going to basketball games, just going to baseball games, just going to the movies. Just enjoying time together. But the problem is they were so in love with those things and they sought them the, the most important thing to them in their life were the things of this world. And because of that, it proved that they did not have a belief in who God is. Because had they believed and known who God is, there's no way that this would have been more important to them than God. Do, do you see where I'm going this morning? 
This was a burden for me, and it's been a burden for me. Because listen, I'm growing up, and, and I'm not knocking people that enjoy sports and take their kids to sports. I, I, I'm not trying to do that. I get Those are good things, okay? But I am saying that somewhere in our life we have to say, the most important thing to me is God. I don't care if my kid has this going on on this and this and this and this. The most important thing to me is God. There's nothing more valuable to me. And I want my children to know that there is nothing more valuable to me. Listen, my, I got a three-year-old, and if the Lord wills, we'll be able to continue to raise him if, if he sees fit. And then eventually, guess what my kid's going to want to do? He's going to want to play ball. He's going to go play basketball or soccer or, or who knows. And, and again, please don't get caught up on the sports thing, even though I'm using that as an example. That's just one, all right? I'm, not, I'm just using that as an example. But God has told me, He said, listen, each and every one of you as Christians are going to stand before me one day. And you're going to hear one of two things. You're either going to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, or you're going to hear, depart from me because I never knew you. And so I ask the question to myself, if I stand before God today, Will I hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? And if I do hear him say that, what will it be for? So my question is, how does my life reflect my love for God in my service to Him? Or does my life reflect my love for the temporary and for the world and my service to that? And a lot of you think that I'm talking about finding the balance. I'm not even talking about finding the balance. Here's the balance. If God is number one, all of that will come first and then you will find in everything else you do a way to make Him the center of your basketball and your baseball and your football or your movies or, or everything or your eating and drinking, your marriage, your giving, your giving in marriage, your building, your planning. Everything you do will revolve around the fact that God is the most important thing in your life. It's not about balance. There is no balance here. The balance is just simply He is the most important thing to me. He's the man. He's the man, and I know He's the man. And because of that, everything else I do revolves around that. And then you will be able to stand before God and hear Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Even in your baseball, I was number one. Even in your basketball, I was number one. Even in your building, I was number one. Even in your marriage, I was number one. Even in your movies, I was number one. No matter what you did, you did it to my glory. And so, out of this burden, God led me to a book. And I, I highly recommend it to you. It's by, it was written in 1961. It's by a man named A.W. Tozer. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's not a very big book, but I can tell you this. I've been reading it for the past month, and right now I have got that much of it done. For the past month. The knowledge of the holy. And you know why? Because as much as we would like to say that we can understand God, the truth of the matter is you can't. You can't understand God. 
But this book, I want to quote you something out of it that Mr. Tozer says. Listen to what he said. He said, The message of this book grows out of a condition which has existed in the church for many years, but it is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of the majesty of God from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God's majesty and has substituted it for one so low and so ignoble as to be utterly unworthy of thinking and worshiping men. This she has done not deliberately, but little by little, even without her knowledge. And her very unawareness of this trade that she has made makes the situation all the more tragic. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. You want to know why we can't worship the way that we should worship even in the church? It's because we can't see God for who He is. That's the truth of it. We don't. And I'm not saying this to shame you this morning. I'm saying this that hopefully you'll look at your life and go, this is why I don't worship like I should. The preacher's not here to try to cast me down. The preacher's not here to try to knock me off my... Well, yeah, the preacher is here to knock you off your pedestal. <laughs> but the preacher is here in the hopes that, that the Word of God can speak to our hearts, to your heart, the same way it has mine, and it still is, so that I can put God in His rightful place and I can see Him for who He is in His rightful place. It says, We have lost our spirit of genuine worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Tozer goes on to say that this loss of this sense of majesty comes from a lack of knowing God and knowing who He is, and that the only hope for us is a rediscovery of the majesty of God, and that this will go a long way toward curing all those who believe. So my prayer for everything that I'm doing and everything that I'm going to do, my goal for 2018 for you and for myself is that God would help us to get to know Him in such a way that it moves our hearts to humble ourselves and to worship His majesty. So we begin a series called Getting to Know God. But the problem is the way that our minds work. The problem with getting to know God is our minds. They work differently. And I know some of you looking at your spouse saying, Amen, we'll quit doing that. All right. All of our minds work differently. Not just our spouse's minds, but our minds work differently. Here's the way we learn. We learn by using what we already know as a bridge to pass over to the unfamiliar or to what we don't know. So for instance, for somebody who is making... Uh, a comic book or a movie and they want to, uh, they're using their, even their imagination and they want to uh, uh, help, help someone to be able to see their, their thought of, imag- of, um, of extraterrestrial life. What does aliens usually look like? An extended person, right? A freak. <laughs> they usually look in some human form in some way, or sometimes they look other ways, but no matter how the author tries to do it, they always take what is known 
Because that's the only way our minds can work is to take what we know and then to transform it in some way and to extend it in some way so that it becomes what we don't know. And so that's the way that our minds work. And it's the same way when we try to imagine God. But here's the problem with us trying to imagine God. God is not like anything that is. That's the reason why you cannot make a graven image that represents Him. There is nothing in your mind that can, that can represent Him. So here's what he says. He says, He is not exactly like anything or anybody A.W. Tozer says, when we try to imagine God and what He is like, we must use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work on. Hence, whatever we visualize to be God, He is not, for we have made our image out of that which was made, and anything that is made is not God. And so there is no way that we can picture God and we can get to know God and we can learn God by anything that our minds will ever be able to understand. Now I am. I'm going to let you down because here's what I want you to understand. For the most of you this morning, if you're like me, you're going to walk away from this lesson going, Okay, what are you trying to say? I need to get to know God, but I can't know God? (laughs) Yeah. That is what I'm trying to say. I need to to get to know God better, but my mind can't understand Him, that He's incomprehensible. Yeah, that is what I'm kind of trying to say. But listen to this. The only proper way to come to know God is to let God reveal Himself to us through the divine self-revelation that He gives us through the Scriptures. Here's what we're going to do. God is going to show us and tell us some things about Him that you can't understand and that don't make sense to you. But if you believe them, here's what God wants you to do. God wants you to believe what He says about Himself and then He wants you to stand back and peer and squint at it and try your best to grasp it. But ultimately be able to just stand back and go, there is nothing and there is no one like that. That is amazing. And that's ultimately what we want to do to get to know God better so that it deepens our worship, it deepens our fear of Him. In the Scriptures, God reveals many of His truths about Himself or we'll call them His attributes. That's what Romans 1 calls them, all right? So in the Scriptures, God reveals many of His attributes. Some of these are what um, scholars call communicable attributes, and that just means that they can be communicated to you. In other words, some of God's attributes you can understand. For instance, you can understand God's love to an extent. You experience God's love to an extent. Now here in this life, you'll never be able to understand the fullness of it. You'll never be, he'll never be able to communicate to you just how much He loves and how great His love is. But it is an attribute of His that can be communicated to you. Mercy. You will be able to understand and He can communicate that He is a merciful God. You can know that. And you can know that He holds back what people deserve. You'll be able to understand grace. It's a communicable attribute. You can understand that He gives you what you don't deserve. 
You can understand that to a certain degree. You can understand His goodness or moral uprightness. How many of you get angry when somebody lies to you? Or you get angry when somebody steals from you? Or you get angry when somebody does something morally wrong to you or to somebody that you love or know? So you can understand that God is morally upright and you know what it feels like to experience someone who is morally upright and you know what it feels like to experience someone who is not. And so he can communicate moral uprightness and what that means to you in some ways. His faithfulness, being faithful, he can communicate to you in some ways. Knowing all of these and experiencing all of these can and should lead you into worship If you experience His love, mercy, His grace, His goodness, His faithfulness, His kindness, all those things, they can and should lead you into worship. And you should worship Him for His mercy. And you can be able to worship Him for His kindness and His goodness and all of these things. But it is only when you know and believe His incommunicable. When I say incommunicable, I'm talking about the things that cannot be communicated to you because you can't experience it. And you can't understand it. It's what makes God who He is. And we're going to begin to look at some of these. It's only when you begin to know and believe some of those attributes that you're going to stand in awe of God. And literally, the only thing you can do is look and just shake your head and go, God, who are you? Who who is like you? What is like you? I've never met anything like you. My mind can't imagine anything like you. And the more you know about His incommunicable attributes, the more you're going to be able to worship in awe and wonder of who He is. Now when I talk about the the attributes that can't be communicated to you, here's what I'm talking about. His um, omnipotence. That's a big word and in layman's terms it simply means His complete power over everything. In other words, your mind cannot completely understand somebody that has absolute, complete control over every single thing, over every person, over every animal, over every event, over every star, over every galaxy, over every sun, over every moon, over every wave. Over There is nothing that is outside of His power. Everything does exactly according to His will. He is omnipotent. The next word that we go to is His omniscience. That's a big word that simply means this. He has all knowledge. He knows everything. He knows you. He told Jeremiah, he said, Before I formed you in the womb, I what? Anybody know the rest of that? I knew you. I ordained you, I sanctified you, I knew everything about you before you were ever formed because I formed you. That's something that only someone that is the creator of all things can say. If he created it, then he already knew everything about it before it was born, before it was made. So we have his omnipotence, we have his omniscience or his all knowledge, and then we have his omnipresence or that he is what? He's present everywhere. David said, where can I go to get away from you? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go down below the ground into the grave, you're there. No matter where I go, you are there. 
This is something that cannot be understood because our minds can't grasp somebody that's present in all places at all times. But it is something that God tells us about Himself that we need to be able to learn so that we can stand in wonder of. These are the things that make Him majestic. These are the things that set Him apart from all of His creation because only He possesses these. No person or thing you ever meet will possess these attributes. He reveals these things to us little by little through His Word, through His creation. I love the way Romans 1 puts it. He says that it is through in creation we see His invisible attributes. Even His eternal power and divine Godhead. So God is trying to show us in His creation, in the universe, in all of His creation that He is eternally powerful. That He is divinely God the creator of all things. And little by little, he wants us to see these things. But here's the thing you've got to understand. Don't fall asleep on me yet. I'm getting to my points. They must be believed by faith. Your mind can't grasp them. They are incomprehensible to you. They are some things you are not familiar with and you will never be able to experience these things. You, are a, uh, you have endless existence. You do. You're going to die. But you have endless existence. What do I mean by that? What happens when you die? You're going to eternity somewhere. You're either going to eternity in heaven with God or you're going to eternal torment, eternal hell away from God. Those are the only two choices. But you have endless existence. But you're not omnipresent. You are not eternal in the fact that you have no beginning and no end. Because you have a beginning. So you will never be able to experience these attributes that I'm talking about. They must be believed by faith. And they're meant to cause us to stand afar off, squint at them, peer at them, and then stand and wonder in all of who God is all by Himself. So in Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 through 15, let's get into the message. Moses has been commissioned by God to go to the children of Israel and to tell them that God is sending him to lead them out of slavery into God's salvation. If you've been in the church any amount of time, you know this story. I don't have to give you too much context in it, but this is what's going on. Now listen, there are a lot of gods in Egypt at this time, okay? And so Moses asks a question. He says, if I come to the people and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Well then, what do I tell them your name is? (laughs) Or who do I tell them you are? Because there's all kind of gods in Egypt. So who do I tell them that you are? How are you different from any other god that's in Egypt? See, the Egypts knew the god of, I think I'm pronouncing it right, of Hapi. And he was the god of the Nile River, which probably is the reason why the first plague was turning the Nile into blood, killing all the fish, because that was one of their gods. So are you coming to them in the name of Happy? (laughs) He says, no, I'm going to show you what I do to Happy. All right, well, maybe they're coming to the god of Heket, which was the god of fertility and the god of water renewal that had the head of a frog. When they painted this God, it literally had the head of the frog. Well, maybe this is the reason why, what was the second plague that came? Frogs. 
You know what's hilarious about that? I love the story. Go back and read it. God sends all these frogs so that they're literally infesting the place, okay? Because they have a God that is a frog, all right? And then all these frogs pour in, and Pharaoh literally looks at Moses and says, Will you please get rid of these frogs? So in other words, will you please get rid of my God? And so Moses looks back at Pharaoh and says, Okay, when do you want them to go? Now to me, that's an odd question. When do you want them to go? Well, what would you say if you're infested by frogs and you want them to leave? And, and you, you say, what? Right now. right now. That's not what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says, okay, well, how about tomorrow morning? <laughs> and Moses says, okay, that's what you want. Tomorrow morning the frogs will be gone. And sure enough, the frogs are gone. So ultimately, here's what I believe God is doing. God is showing His power over all of these gods and saying these gods that all these people think are gods are not even gods. I'm going to show you that I have power over all the things that you think are gods. But instead, they're simply nuisances to you and things that get in your way. Or what about the God of Geb? This was the God of the dust of the earth. This is where Aaron commanded to strike the dust and it became lice. So literally, when you go and you read the story, God tells Aaron, strike the dust of the earth. They had a God of dust. And when they struck the dust, the dust flew up and all the dust became lice or became gnats, some version describes it as. And then... They had the God of Kepri, and I can go through all these. This God of the sun, that he had the head of a fly. You remember what happened in the next plague? The flies. And so here, here's the point that I believe that, that, that we're getting to. Moses says, listen God, there's all kind of gods in Egypt. There's all kind of gods. And these people have been living there for 400 years. You're telling me to go to them and say, the God of your fathers, not these other gods but a specific God, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. So if they say to me, well, who is he? What is his name? What do I say to them? And so here's what we get. <clears throat> Tell them Moses, or first off, he speaks to Moses. He says, Moses, first off, you need to understand something. I am who I am. The second thing, you go and tell them that I am has sent you to them. And then you go and tell them that Yahweh has sent you to them. And we're going to get into that a little bit deeper. First, we've got to look at what a name is. Moses wants to know the name. Why is the name important? Well, God always gave names, and names always represented who a person was. Okay? Take, for instance, um, uh, Eve in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. Um, the Bible actually tells us that the man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. So here's what we get from that. Eve meant what? The mother of all living. And so that's why she bared the, that's why she was given the name that she was given. In Genesis chapter 17 verse 5, we see that Abraham's name is changed. He says, God says, "No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." And so here's ultimately what we get from this. Abraham meant the father 
of many nations. And so he gave him a name that described who he was, that best described his character. Another thing we get is Sarah, or Sarah to Sarah. Y'all remember that? I don't have to go through that verse again. But then one of the last ones, look at Matthew 121. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Not Jose, not James, not Judah, not, not Nick, not Kevin, not Eddie, not Ronnie. You will bear a son and you're going to call his name Jesus. And here's why. For he shall save his people from their sins. So ultimately, what do we learn from that? That Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. So if names have always described for God the character of the person, the abilities of the person, who the person is, then how much more is God going to give Himself a name that describes to us who He is? So He tells Moses, my name is Yahweh. Now up to this point, God has only revealed Himself as God Almighty, the God of all power. Exodus chapter 6 verse 23, please. Or No, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 6 verses 2 through 3. I read it wrong. And I gave it to you wrong, didn't I? Exodus chapter 6 verses 2 and 3. Listen to what this says. <clears throat> God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now here's something you need to know. Please don't get bored with me. This is important stuff. Anytime you see the Lord in capital letters, it's actually a name. It's translated as Lord, and I'll explain to you why here in a minute. But it's actually the name that God gave Himself. So when you read this, it'll say, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. Now here you would see two words. You would typically see Elohim. Elohim was just a Hebrew word that meant God. And then they shortened that to El. Instead of Elohim, they said El, El. And that meant God. And then they would add to that His characteristic. So where you read here, God Almighty, what you actually see is El Shaddai. This ain't a history lesson or some kind of professor trying to teach you anything that that I think I know. This is just the truth. El Shaddai just simply means God Almighty. The God of all power. So here's what God is telling Moses. Up to this point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only knew me as the Almighty God. As the God that had power over all things. But by my name... Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And so with that being said, we have to ask the question, what is God trying to translate to us that makes us, that he, what is it that God wants us to know about Him? He wanted Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to know, I'm the God of all power. What is it that He wants us to know and wants Moses to know by giving Himself a name, Yahweh? First off, let me give you just a little bit of history on this. Our versions usually don't translate Yahweh. If you have an English version of the Bible, more than likely it says, um, it says the Lord in capital letters. Or it might say Jehovah. And I'll explain that here in just a minute. But this follows the tradition from the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20 verse 7 where the Lord says, you shall not take the Lord's name, or it actually means you shall not take Yahweh... 
So you shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So here's what the Jews did in old time. They said, in order to make sure that we do not take his name in vain, it's used 6,828 times. That name is used 6,828 times in the Old Testament. Okay? In order so that a Jew don't stand up before people and use it in the wrong way, we're going to just make sure that it's translated as Adonai, which means my Lord. So they translated it as my Lord. And ultimately, to distinguish it, our translations have made the Lord capitalized so that we know whenever we see the Lord in capital letters, it means His name, Yahweh. When we see the Lord in little letters, or just one big L and the rest little O, little R, little D, when we see that, it means my Lord. It means Adonai. That was the difference in the translation in the two. And then our English traditions just, they followed that tradition. Now where did Jehovah come from? Well, in the 1500s or somewhere around in there, Christian monks decided that they were going to translate the Bible. And when they began to translate the Bible, they decided that they were going to put the vowels from Adonai, which means my Lord, into Yahweh. And because of that, Germans actually translated, I think it was Y's and W's as J's and V's. And so because of the difference in the language, even though they spelt out Yahweh, how did they say it? Jehovah. And so then Christian monks began to translate Yahweh, but it was spoken as Jehovah. And so then when translations come over today, guess what we end up with? We end up with some translations that actually translate it Jehovah. Even though originally the original translation was Yahweh. It's still not wrong. The thing you have to understand is we have to go back and ask the question, okay, what does it mean? What does it mean? What is it that God is trying to translate to us when He says Yahweh? And so God gives us three answers, I believe, in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. The first thing in verse 13, if my people come to you, if the people of Israel come and say, Who is His name? Who is He? What shall I say to them? And in verse 14, God says to Moses, First, Moses, I am that I am. That's the first thing. The second thing, and He said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The third thing, He says in verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so what is it that he's trying to say? Well, there are two things that I noticed from these three names that he gave. My Wednesday night people will recognize this type of study. One of the things I went back and looked at was, what is the Hebrew word for I am that I am? What is the Hebrew word for I am? What is the Hebrew word for Yahweh? And here's what you will find out. The name I am and the name Yahweh are built out of the same Hebrew word. It's a word that's pronounced, hey (laughs) y'all. I know, that's the truth though. So I am comes out of a word that's pronounced, hey y'all. And so 
Here's the difference in them. I am is the first tense of the word. Hey, y'all literally means I am. That's what it means. It means I exist. It means I am the self-existing one. And then when you get down to Yahweh, it's the same word but used in the third person sense. Because remember, Moses is going to the people and he's telling them, this God sent me to you. So it translates to the third person. And so instead of being I am, Yahweh literally means He is. I am has, first off Moses, I'm talking to you, I am. And then you can go and tell them that I am. But then you go and you make sure you tell them He is. What does that mean? He is. I am. What are you trying to say to us, God? Well, here's what I got out of this thing. The first thing that God wants us to know. God never had a beginning. He just is. He just is. God, how, who are you and how would you describe yourself to me? Well, I am. Okay, Moses, you say this God sent you to us. Well, how would you describe Him to us? Who is He? Well, He, he is. He is. He has no beginning. He just is. He is self-existing. I have always been and I will always be. Moses, I am that I am. I, I don't know how to translate this to you because it's incommunicable. So the only thing I can do is give you a word that helps you understand this. I am because I am. I didn't come from nothing. I'm not going to anybody. I've always been here and I will always be here. But listen, this is hard for our minds to grab. What's the number one question that children usually ask as they learn about God? Where did God come from? Mama, where did God come from? Daddy, where, where did God come from? Who made God? And so this is asked because we're all created and all we know is created. So we assume that everything was made by something and even that something had to be made by something, right? That's all we know. This is the way our minds work. And so when God comes and says, I am, <laughs> the only thing we can do is go... You are? Okay. You are. See, science tells us that everything is made either in time, it exists in space, and, and I, I listen to a lot of the atheists, and a lot of the, this is where a lot of this comes from. But they believe that everything is made in time, so everything has a beginning, everything has an end. They believe that everything exists in space. There is no supernatural, that it's just everything exists in space. And they believe that everything that is is made up of matter, that it is matter of some kind. So you've got time, you've got space, you've got matter. And the Bible backs this up, actually. The Bible says in Genesis 1, chapter 1, in the beginning... You have time. Okay? So in the beginning, time. And then God created the heavens. You have space. And then God created the earth. You have matter that sits in space. And so they're correct to assume 
that this is the way things are. Everything is in time, everything exists in space, and everything that's in space is matter. And don't get it twisted because you have to have all three. You can't have space and matter without time because there must be a beginning. If they did not say in the beginning, there would be no space. There would be no matter. And so you can't have time and matter without space, but suppose you had a beginning and then suppose you had a, um, suppose you had a beginning, but then you, had, you didn't have any space. Where would you put the matter? You, can't, you have to have space to be able to put it there. And then the last thing, you can have time and you can have space, but without matter it would be nothing. If you had time and space but you didn't have any humans or you didn't have any worlds or you didn't have any stars or you didn't have any moons or suns, then what do you have? You've got nothing. And so they are correct. But here's the problem. The guy who created this, which is I am God, exists outside of all of his time and all of his space and all of his matter. You see that TV right there? The man who created it. Is he inside it, running around it right now, changing the pictures? He exists outside of his creation, correct? It is his creation. It's doing exactly what he means for it to do. But he's not inside of it changing everything around. The God that created all these things exists outside of time and space and matter. Even though he created all the things that science is so complexed about, right? And so what we have to understand is that when God says, I am, we have to understand that it is very possible and it is absolutely true that wherever time came from and wherever space came from and wherever matter came from came from something that just is. Because He exists outside of His time. Listen, if God were constrained by time, then He would not be God. If God were limited by space, then He would not be God. If God were, um, were constrained by His matter, then He would not be God. He is, limited, he is limited by nothing. He exists outside of all of His creation, even though it is true that there is time, even though it is true that there is space, and even though it is true that there is matter. God has no origin because He exists outside of these things. The truth of the matter is God is the creator of origin. The reason we have time is because He is. When God said, I am, He said, the reason you are is because why? You are because I am. You are because He is. God has no origin. He is the creator of origin. He is origin. Listen to what A.W. Tozer says. When when told God has no origin, we find this hard to grasp. I did. I do. You only believe it by faith. We find it hard to grasp because it introduces a category with which we are totally unfamiliar and it contradicts our bent toward origin toward time and space and matter. And this bent toward time, space and matter is deeply ingrained in each and every one of us. Everything has to have a beginning or or we can't grab it. It ain't right. Something's not right about this. 
He says it's a bent that impels them to probe back and ever back toward undiscovered beginnings. The human mind being created has an understandable uneasiness about the uncreated. We do not find it comfortable to allow for the presence of one who is wholly outside the circle of our familiar knowledge. It's not comfortable for us. We tend to be disquitted by the thought of the one who does not account to us for his being or who is responsible to no one who is self-existent, self-dependent, and self-sufficient that sits uneasy with us. Yahweh means that God wants us to know this. This is it. He is. And He has always been. And He will always be. And everything that is, is because He is. You are because He is. Because everything that is comes from Him. He is all powerful over it. He's all knowing of it. And He's everywhere in it. God said, I am the great I am. That's who I am. The next thing God wants us to know about Him is that He's the only one that truly exists. Did you know that you don't truly exist? This is going to be hard for you, but listen to me. If God created time, God created space, and God created matter, and that includes us, then everything, including us, depends on Him. If at one moment He decided to quit thinking about you, what would happen to you? You would not exist. God is the only one who can never not exist. At any moment, any of His creation, He could decide to to just, you not exist. Now, He's not going to do that. We know from His Word that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we know what God is going to do for us. We know His plan for us. But the truth of the matter is, if at any time He wanted to, you would no longer exist. The world would no longer exist. The stars would no longer exist. Nothing would exist. He is the only one that truly exists. All creation came into being by the great I Am, and it only stays in the moment by moment by God's decision to keep it in being. Listen to what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Paul said, In Him we live, we move, and we have our being. Where do we, where do we live? In Him. In Him we live, we move, and we have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. And so the whole universe, 93 billion light years long of stars, planets, black holes, um, earth, and all that is in it, it lives and it moves and it has its being in God. Try to wrap your head around that. I can't. But I'm not meant to. It's an incommunicable attribute. I'm meant to look at it and go, Who are you? And that's my prayer for you this morning. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will open up your heart this morning and that everything you heard, that the only thing you can do is look at God and go, Who in the world are you? Who are you? And His answer will be the same. I am. I am that I am. I am which I am. I am the self-existing one. And no one exists other than me, truthfully. Ultimately, all the universe is by comparison to God. Nothing 
Last thing I'll mention today, this is the third thing, or many more, but the last one I'll mention today. God is the most important and most valuable reality in all the universe. God is the most important and the most valuable reality in all the universe. He is worthy of interest and attention and admiration and enjoyment than all other creation. Listen to me very closely. I love the way that Francis Chan put this. He had a rope that he put at the beginning of his stage and it went around his stage and I think it went plumb out the door. And then on the end of this rope he wrapped some tape, one piece of tape. I think it was red, about that long. And he held that rope And he said, this is eternity. It never stops. It goes on forever. And this tape represents your life in the span of eternity. He said, most of us are living right now as if this is what matters. This. He said, and we don't realize that this is where we're going. I love the way John Piper put this. He said, many of us treat God like hydrogen. Give you a science lesson. I'm a water treatment guy, so anybody know what water is made up of? H2O. Two hydrogens, one oxygen. So here's what you learn in school. This that I depend to live on. Because if you don't drink liquids made of water for so many days, what happens to you? You die. This that you, your life depends on. You learned in school that this is hydrogen. And then you said, okay, I believe it. That's hydrogen. How much more thought have you gave about hydrogen since the day you learned about it? Anybody? Anything? What does it mean to you? But yet your life depends on it. It depends on it. And so he said, here's what we do to God. He said, one day we're going to stand before God. And he said, here's what God's going to say. Is it true that when you are on earth in your life, that the people that are the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most distinguished, they they receive the most admiration, the most honor, and, and, and the most... Glory. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. But you say that you believed in me, the I am. The one in which is the only one that actually exists. The one in which is the only one that means anything to anyone. The one in which is going to give you eternity in one place or the other. You say you believe in the I am. So if that is true, then why did I hold so, such an insignificant place in your life? See, the truth of the matter is this. We treat God like hydrogen. We believe. But we're only going to give you this much because we don't really place that much value on you. Ain't that the truth? That's the truth of it. You know, I was talking to, um, I think it was Ken or Ronnie or somebody, I was talking to him, and I said, you know, um, 
the small group things. You know, we've had some visitors, and most of the time we're looking at these visitors and we're trying to get them connected and we're trying to figure out ways to, to, to get them walking in faith with us. And, and our small groups is one of the ways that we do that. And we hadn't had a small group in a little while because we've been busy. And we have. I mean, we, we've been busy. And then I know Ken and Renee, they've been busy. And Eddie and Shirley, they've been busy. And Ronnie and Letha, they, they've been busy. And here's what God said to me. Okay, you've been busy. You have been busy. But I just got one question. At what point do you stop and say, this is the most important thing in my life to determine your busyness? That's hard, ain't it? Yeah, I know you're busy. I know you're busy. But my question to you is simple. Am I like hydrogen to you? Or am I the great I am? What am I? And so, I got a good stern kick in the butt to realize that I treat God like hydrogen. Because I have time for everything else in this life. But I don't have time to serve the almighty God, the great I am. So in closing... Why does any of this matter? Because it is the only knowledge that can deepen our worship to God. You're not going to worship God the way He deserves until you know who He is. And when you realize who He is, you will realize that there is nothing and no one like Him. That He is the only thing that actually exists and that He is the ultimate most important, most valuable being and person in all of creation, in all the universe. There is nothing more valuable to Him. And it is through this knowledge that you learn that all this that you're putting in this little bit of life that you've got right here, guess what? It is going to be so easy for God to condemn us on that day. A lot of us think, well, how in the world could God... Listen, let me tell you what you just did. The created being just set himself on the throne of God and said, I am. Did anybody feel the weight of that? A created being just set himself on the throne of God and said, I am. And what I believe is more important than anything and what I need in this life is more important than anything, and what I want in this life is more important than anything, and my happiness in this life is more important than anything, a created being just set himself on the throne of God and said, Hey, (laughs) I am. It is going to be so easy for God to stand in judgment one day and say, So you believed in me, huh? Okay. Guess what? I am. And I am all that matters. This is my burden. And my prayer to you is that you will wake up just like God is waking me up. Is that He'll wake you up and realize that the majority of my life is spent by me sitting on the throne of God and looking at Him saying, I am. And I pray that by seeing the great I am, that it turns you around. 
And it moves you to worship Him and to, to stand in awe and wonder of who He is. That every time you hear the name Yahweh or you read in your Bible and see Lord in capital letters, that it moves you to say, oh my goodness. I have never seen or heard of anything like this God. He is the great I Am. If y'all would stand this morning, i got so much more I'd love to share with you, but I think the message is clear. Yahweh, Yahweh, God is the great I Am. Get off His throne. Get off His throne and humble yourself. I love the message of Pentecost that Peter preached. If you were to go to the book of Acts chapter 2, you'll read the message that Peter preached. And then at the end of this thing, they were pricked in their hearts and their response was this, What shall we do? And Peter said, I'll tell you what, repent. Repent. Be baptized. Have your sins washed away. So ultimately I'm saying to you, something in your heart should have said, Okay preacher, you're talking to me. What do I do? Let me tell you what you do. You come and you humble yourself before Him and you say, I want to repent. I want to start putting Him first in my life. I want Him to be the great I Am because that's who He is. And then I want everything I do to revolve around Him. And I want to love Him more and I want to know Him more and I want to worship Him more. And if you do that, I promise you, you will be one that will stand before the great I Am and you will hear Him look at you, a created being, and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things here in this life. Enter into my kingdom and I'm going to make you master over many. That's what you'll hear. Whatever you need this morning, now's the time. I invite you to come.